this morning, as we think about this study of the differences between Catholic doctrine and our beliefs, this will be the, the last one, I think, of our study. And this morning, we're going to talk about the idea of purgatory. And so, if you've been following the line of thought that we've talked about during this study, then, frankly, you could probably teach this session yourself. Uh, you could probably teach why Catholics think purgatory is necessary, and you could probably teach why it doesn't make any sense in our understanding of how salvation works. Uh, and you could probably give verses to support that. We've kind of talked about some of that stuff, and it will come up this morning. But um, I'm the one teaching this morning, so I'm going to put the pieces together for us. And so I won't make you stand up here and do that. Uh, but I'll try and connect those pieces for us. So let's think first about the Catholic understanding of what purgatory is. So you remember in Catholic understanding of how someone is saved, how someone has right standing with God, that that's different than what we understand. Justification is a, is a process, right? And so you're given, you're infused with grace at the point of baptism, but then if you commit sins, you have to go to uh, Mass, you have to do penance to have those sins uh, covered and dealt with, so to speak. And so then you're made right again, but it's this continual process. And eventually, as you work through that process, and sin keeps decreasing in your life, eventually sin will be eliminated. Now, for most people in the Catholic understanding, that doesn't happen before you die. It is possible, uh, in theory, for it to happen. But generally speaking, all of our sin, all of the sanctification doesn't happen before you die. And so, because you still have sin remaining that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be purged, that's why you go to purgatory to have that remaining sin cleansed from you so that then you'll be able to enter into the holy presence of God. You won't have any sin remaining. You'll be completely holy. So that's why you can then go from purgatory into the presence of God. That's the Catholic understanding. And that's when you're finally right with God is when sin is eliminated. And so, Catholics would say that purgatory is necessary because we have to have all of our sin eliminated before we enter into the presence of the Lord. So, uh, they say things like this. They state that all who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. And so there's, there's a further cleansing after death. That's purgatory. And so here are the passages that they point to in the Catholic Catechism to support the idea of purgatory. One would be 1 Corinthians 3.15, so I want to look at, there are 
really three sets. I want to look at them individually and kind of talk about them. So the first place is 1 Corinthians 3.15. And they talk about how there's this idea in the Bible of a cleansing fire. And that's really what they would equate purgatory to. So one of the places they quote is from 1 Corinthians 3.15. And it says this. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so, in this passage, it does talk about a cleansing fire, so to speak, a, a final judgment fire, but that's really what it's talking about. It's talking about how we will go through this on the day, that day, which is the day of the Lord, the, the final day of judgment. And really, this fire is talking about how everything is going to be tested. And if it's of value, it's going to remain. If it's been done for the Lord, then it's going to remain. But if the things that we've done that uh, haven't been for the Lord, so to speak, those will be burned away. But this really, as you look at it, is not talking about some state in between death and entering the presence of the Lord. It's talking about that moment of final judgment, whenever we stand before the Lord and our works are tested, whether they have been done for him or not. So I would say, as we look at this passage and Paul talks about it, it's really not referring to the idea of purgatory. Uh, it is a cleansing fire. It is talking about final judgment, but it doesn't really match up with the Catholic understanding of purgatory. You could also look, they also quote 1 Peter 1.7, but that passage specifically is not talking about something future. It's talking about right now, but I won't go into that passage a lot. But it also speaks of a cleansing fire, the trials we go through right now to help eliminate the sin in our lives so we follow the Lord better. Uh, another kind of support that they use for the idea of purgatory is found in Matthew 12, 31. And this might be the most interesting one. Uh, but this is Matthew 12, verse 31. And this is where it talks about the impardonable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And so in Matthew 12, 31, it says this, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven uh, and then verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And here's the phrase, either in this age or in the age to come. And so Catholics would look at that and say, well, there's a possibility here of being forgiven in the age to come. In other words, it's not just something that happens right now. If you can uh, if it says you won't be forgiven for blaspheming the Spirit in the age to come, they would say, well, logically they would work out and say, well, that means you might be forgiven of other things in the age to come, just not this sin. Uh, I would say that's probably reading too much into the verse 1, uh, specifically because in that verse before it, it specifically talks about Really, I think it points us to this idea of final judgment again. At, at the, the judgment seat of God, uh, 
when we'll be either cleared or not cleared. I think that's kind of what it's pointing to. But we also have this idea in the Bible about how when we die, then we face judgment. And so really there's no opportunity after this life to change our mind, to be forgiven. Like this is, this is the time. That's why the Bible emphasizes that today is the day of salvation because this is the time and after this life is over, we can't change. Once the final judgment comes, which we face at, again, Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed to man once to die and then the judgment, right? Once we face the judgment, that's final. And so after, really after this life, there's no, uh, there's no second chances, so to speak. It's, it's final. And so I would say that's why that this passage is probably not talking about forgiveness in the age to come in that sense, but it's just pointing out the fact that, hey, if you reject God now, that means you'll be rejected by God in the future when you face him at judgment. I think that's the point of this passage, and that's really what we're meant to take from it as well. So that's, that's another passage that they cite to support this idea. And the final one we'll look at is Job chapter 1, verse 5. Job chapter 1, verse 5. And this has to do with, this is a verse they use to say that prayers or indulgences or penance can be done on behalf of those who are dead. And so this is why... Uh, you should do those things for people who are in purgatory because it's something that the Bible talks about, you being able to do these things for other people. That, that would be their argument. So Job chapter 1, verse 5 says this, When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, that's his kids, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. And so a couple of things to notice with this passage. First, Job isn't doing this for people who are dead. That's the first thing, which is important because they use this to support the idea of purgatory, right? So that's not unimportant. But the other thing to notice or to think about would be whether or not Job is telling us this is something we should be doing on, on behalf of others, or whether this is really just listing an example of what he did. Because, I say that because we know from other places in the Bible that we actually cannot atone for someone else's wrongdoing. Right? We should and we can pray for other people, and we see Job doing that. And we should do that. But we can't uh, cover other people's sins, so to speak. It's not as though Job's offerings here in this passage were actually cleansing other people's sins for them, so to speak. We know from Jeremiah 31, specifically, that that's not how that works. Uh, I'll read that one for you. Jeremiah 31, where it talks about the new covenant, which you is the time frame we live in. Jeremiah 31, 29 says this, In those days, the days of the new covenant, 
They shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. And so the point there is that we're responsible for our own sins, the things we do. Uh, we should pray for others. James even talks about the person who uh, warns someone, they see someone going the wrong way, and you turn them back, you say, hey, you're going the wrong way, this is where you're going to head, you need to turn back. James talks about that person uh, covering a multitude of sins, but in that sense, it's not as though that person is making that happen, it's just that the other person comes to their senses and they actually realize they're doing something wrong. They seek the forgiveness of the Lord and that's, that's how they're forgiven. It's not because of me praying for my kids that my kids are going to be saved, although that's a part of it, but ultimately they have to respond. There's nothing I can do to actually save them, right? I can't believe for them. I can't uh, stack up credit in their column, so to speak, so that God will think better of them and let them into heaven, it's something that they have to individually respond to the Lord. And so we see that in Scripture. So in short, I think that there's not a place, this verse or other places, that says that the things we do actually purify the people we're praying for. That's something they have to deal with with God themselves individually. It's not something we can do for them. So as we look at these verses, uh, I think they're not very clear in supporting the position of purgatory. I think we would look at the Bible and say there's really no place that teaches purgatory, but it's just something that in the Catholic system, it's a logical progression. They've set themselves up to, to need it, and so that's how it's developed over the years. Uh, but because they get other parts of the system wrong, then I would say it leads to getting this part wrong as well. So that's the Catholic understanding of purgatory. It flows out of the progression of justification being a process and having to be completed before you enter into heaven. Now let's think about our understanding, how the really how the Protestant understanding of justification and these things would disagree with this. So when you think about what we believe about justification, you could look at Romans 5, chapter 1. This is a great summary verse. Uh, Romans 5, 1 says this, and you might know the verse. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that same wording throughout the whole chapter. You go down to verse 9. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And we just notice the tenses of those words. It doesn't say we will be justified whenever we get our act together and all the sin is finally eliminated from our lives and we're perfect. It says we are, we have been. It's something that happened in the past at the point where we have faith. We've been justified by faith. At the point where we have faith in Jesus, that is the point where God declares us to be just and righteous and holy in his eyes. 
That doesn't mean all the sin is done away with in our lives and that we live a perfect life. But God looks at us at that point just like he looks at his beloved son. And he adopts us into his family. He calls us part of his family. And so we've been reconciled to God, even though we still have sin, right? We, we've referenced it a couple of times, but Hebrews 10, 14 talks about that, how he has perfected us, even though we're still being sanctified. And so that means that when we die, we, we also don't expect that we'll be perfect, right? We expect that we will have to fight against sin our whole life, that we're not going to be perfected. Until, we, uh, until after we die. But the difference is, we don't think there's going to be a waiting period for us to enter into the presence of God because God has already cleared us, so to speak. He's already said we're a part of his family, and so we can go into his presence right now after we die. And uh, there's, there's two ways to explain this, that we would explain this. First is from 1 John. This is maybe the, the straightforward teaching of how this works. How is it that we, who have sin when we die, can actually enter into the presence of a holy God? Well, it says this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. It says this, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears... We shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. And so we see from that verse that what is it that finally cleanses our sin? It's not that our sin keeps us from seeing God. It's just the opposite, that when we see the Lord, that's when all the sin that clings to us will be done away with. And so the Bible would teach that when we die and we enter into the presence of the Lord, that's when all that remaining sin is fully done away with. That's what we need. If we were waiting to enter the presence of God until all the sin was done away with, we would be waiting forever. Because it's only by seeing him, by entering his presence, that it's done away with. And I think the greatest example of this is the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son, right? He went away. He was reckless and careless with his money that he had taken from his father. And what did he do? He ended up running out of money. He had to work and feed the pigs. And so you can imagine how muddy his clothes were, probably smelled like the pigs, right? And he decided, this is terrible. I'm just going to go back to my dad and... It's, it's better to be there and be a servant for him than it is to be here. So he decides he's going to go back. And he went to his father. Uh, but what did his father say when he came back? Right? He saw the son coming, and then he went and met him, and he said, Son, you stink, and you really need to change your clothes and get your life put together before you can come into the house. Right? No, that's not what he said. Right? Uh, he said... He ran to him, he hugged him, filthy clothes and all, and he called the servants. He said, bring the good robes out and clothe him with the good stuff. We're going to throw a feast. He welcomes him in, even though he's still got these 
dirty garments clinging to him. I think that's really a picture of two things. One, of how salvation works, right? God doesn't wait for us to clean ourselves up before he accepts us and saves us and forgives us. But it's also a picture of really what happens when we die, I think, of how, yeah, we have sin that still clings to us, like Hebrews talks about. But God doesn't keep us away. No, he embraces us. He welcomes us in, and he gives us the the holy robes, so to speak, that we read about, and, and completely purifies us from all that filth that's still remaining from our time here in this life. And so that's really the complete opposite of what we see in purgatory. And that's would be our understanding of what happens when we die. Yes, we die with sin, but that doesn't keep us out of the presence of God. Just the opposite. He, Because he loves us and he has adopted us as his children, he welcomes us in and makes sure that we are fully cleansed coming into his presence. And he welcomes us in. That's, that's our hope as Christians. That God will not turn us away. He won't make us wait. Our sin is not going to keep us from him. But that he, in his love, died for us while we were still sinners and welcomes us into his presence and fully cleanses us, even though we don't die perfect. Right? That's our hope that we will be in the presence of God. And so that's really why we don't think that purgatory exists. It really goes back to this understanding of what salvation is, of God declaring us holy, and then also these verses that we looked at, both on the, the Catholic teaching of not really thinking they line up with what the Bible says, but then also on our understanding of saying that really the Bible teaches something else about what happens when we die, that God immediately welcomes us into his presence with him and fully cleanses us. And so that's uh, the final topic as we think about purgatory and what we believe happens after we die, how God welcomes us in.